Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Perspectives on the Reemergence. Um, it is so great to have you all back here again. Uh, tonight, I have another special guest with me, uh, Sheila Foster, who is, as you saw in my email, um, a thought leader, a scholar, a teacher. She is a uh, professor of law at Georgetown at Fordham. She was a professor there as well as the vice dean. Uh, a lot of her work that she's been doing more recently is on urban law, which we're going to be talking to her about this. And she's written on topics such as environmental justice and climate change, co-cities and urban commons, uh, land use, property and urban development, and uh, cities and global governance. Uh, she is, in my opinion, a wise woman, an incredible heart. She is a mother and she's devoted to Rosalind. And they're just an amazing family who I've known a long time. So I feel really blessed to have her here with me tonight. So thank you for being here with me, Sheila. Great to be here. I'm so honored. So how have you been? How is, how is your family? So like everyone else, I think we have had some cabin fever after a few months of quarantine. I actually live in New York City, even though I teach in Washington. And so being in New York and in particular lower Manhattan has been intense um, or, uh, over the course of the, pan the pandemic and the quarantine and also with the protest um, and the rebellion. Um, so right now we're actually in the Poconos. We escaped a bit to the mountains to just clear out um, our energy, to breathe a little deeper. I have a 15 year old son um, who's obviously African-American. And so I think it's been a particularly hard time for him. And so being away and being out of the city and um, away from the intensity of the moment has been great for him and all of us. So I think, uh, I think nature has been so important for anybody who can get there and helping them just maintain and, and process and heal. Um, and especially going in and out of urban environments. It's been such a reminder of the importance to connect with our, our environment around us and with nature. Um, so I'm glad that you're there. Uh, especially also, you know, we've had this incredible eclipse that's been going on. We're in this eclipse period. I don't know if you know, we had a- uh, I don't know. Yeah, you don't know. So on June, no, 5th, no. On, on June 5th, we had a, a lunar eclipse. Um, and, uh, and, you know, this is really, with eclipses and with astrology, right? There's so much depth of information, but basically lunar eclipse and Sag. So you could say, you know, uh, get your dreams on, you know, get your imagination going, mm. where, where, where are you shooting for? Um, but from within, right? Lunar, it's, it's the, the moon, it's the lunar, it's the yin, it's the internal. Uh, and then we just, this weekend, it was summer solstice on Saturday. And uh, yesterday uh, we had a solar eclipse in Cancer. So, oh, I've dreamed it. Now, wait, let me, what do I actually care about? What am oh. I really, you know, it's, it's now bringing it back to, to us, to our own relationships, um, to the, the reality that we live in and right. And, and all of life, no matter what we're doing is relationship in some form or another. Uh, and then coming up on July 5th, we have another lunar eclipse. Uh, so we have three in a row, uh, which is pretty wow. unusual. The next time that's going to happen in one. So it's a, we're three eclipses in one lunar cycle. So the next time that'll happen hmm. will be, uh, in 2029. Uh, so it's definitely not something Amazing. often. And this one, the lunar eclipse that's coming up on the, the fifth is, is in Capricorn, which I always feel like that's like, oh, okay, so you dreamt it, you brought it back into the body and to your relationships. What are you willing to do for it? Capricorn oh, okay. is, you know, Capricorn is, uh, uh, you know, 
they, they'll climb the highest mountain, they'll take the hardest path and they'll make it to the top. Um, you know, so sometimes it takes Capricorn a while to make their decisions of where they're going, but they rarely don't get to where they, they decide to go. And so I think these eclipses are asking us, where, where are we willing to bleed for? What are we willing to, to work for? Um, individually, and, and it hits different people in their charts differently, but it also hits us as a community. And so I think it's really interesting with COVID, uh, with Black Lives Matters, with all of what's happening right now, it's, you know, what are we willing to bleed for? What are we, you know, and what are we willing to tolerate? You know, bleed for in both ways, right? There's mm -hmm. the bleeding for it and what we're willing to fight for. There's the bleeding for it and what we're mm -hmm. willing to suffer without action. And I think mm -hmm. we're at this pivotal moment, um, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, because I feel like uh, you've been having a lot of interesting conversations around this in different ways. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, if we may just circle back for a moment, you know, as you said, you know, obviously you have a, a son who's African-American. I'm, I'm curious as to what some of the conversations you had to have with him around this at this time. Right. So as with many Black parents, um, we all have long had the conversation, right, the talk. He, you know, gets on the subway every day to travel to school. Um, you know, he's had various interactions along the way. Uh, he's got to learn how to interpret them against the backdrop of, you know, being raised in a society where if we're watching the news, there's another, you know, uh, Ferguson or, you know, name the city <laughs> and the African-American um, African man or woman who's um, shot and killed and or killed by the police. Uh, so... I think as he's come into his teenage years and really uh, becoming a man, um, he's more and more aware. Um, and of course, things have happened in his life, uh, microaggressions, I would say, uh, based on race that also make him aware. So, you know, it's, it's we've been processing a lot um, what this moment means. Um, at one point uh, over the past few weeks uh, when the protesters uh, were, in uh, Soho, right? And there was some looting going on. Um, you know, we heard helicopters and the police presence was very anxiety producing for him. And, you know, he's in the middle of finals at this point online, <laughs> uh, finishing his ninth grade. And it's a extra level of the stress and anxiety that all of us are going through, right? With the pandemic and with um, having to face the reality of I think, um, an endemic problem in our society of racism. Well, how old is he? He's 15. Yeah, I mean, I think these kids today across the board, uh, what the, the world that they're facing and what they're dealing with and, and the awareness that they have of it also, especially because of the internet and, and also even the, the boundaries, the lines between parent and child have changed dramatically from when mm -hmm. we were kids to now. Uh, so their awareness is so much more and, and you know, in some ways, uh, for as traumatic of a period that this is that we're going through, it feels important and relevant in that, you know, this the the threat of the environment has been sitting on our neck mm -hmm. for you know my entire lifetime and before, right? Uh, and it's just gotten more and more and more intense, you know. And what what the environment is, you know, racism. It's it's you know it's been there. Like all of the stuff has been there, and and these yeah, kids have been aware of it. And, and been educated to it in a way that is just different. Um, and so they've been aware of it. And so even though this is really traumatic, I also feel like it's one of those moments where shit is up. So yeah. 
now maybe we can actually face it and, and do something about it and not just all feel bad that that's true, but, uh, uh, you know, take action. And I feel like that's what, um, I feel like that's what the universe is asking for of us. But I also think that that's what, you know, humans are asking for now, especially the young, uh, the young people. They're really saying like, uh, you know what? I don't, I don't necessarily like the world you're handing over to me and I want you to hand me something different. I want you to, I want you to change it. Do you feel that's true as a, I mean, you know, both as a professor, but as a mother, you know, I'm asking, you know, Absolutely, it's a moment. So I think of a couple of reflections on that. One is from the perspective of someone who's his age, you know, who I remember we took him to vote um, or with us voting for President Obama, right, um, early in his life. So here's a child who comes into the world, a black child, and his first awareness of politics is to elect the first black president, right, and the pride that that gave him and us um, and to grow up as a child with um, your reflection, right? Your image um, as a man on the screen. And then to shift to where we are now has been, I think, a um, really a head spinning moment for him and for kids in this generation who are growing up who thought that they were in a different kind of world. Um, yes, climate change was an issue for them, a lot of other issues, but I think this issue of racism, you know, so I, I say that we're living through you know, two pandemics and they're quite related, right? The COVID pandemic and the pandemic of racism and boy, are they intersecting. And the interesting thing is that because we're in a pandemic and we're quarantined, there's a captive audience now for people to look at what's happening, right? So the George Floyd incident, that's not the first incident, right? We go back to Rodney King and really before that, I grew up in Miami and you know, 19, I, I believe 81, you know, a black man was shot by a white cop and the police officers were on trial and they were acquitted and you know, Miami went up in flames. I was born in Detroit, um, right on the heels of the riots in Detroit. So these are not new issues. So why in this moment are people really focused on them? In part, because we're captive, right? We don't have the distraction of work or whatever else we're used to doing. We have to sit at home and the kids are captive too. So the kids have to figure out, like my son, how to think about this world that it's clear that we all have inherited even though they've grown up, I think, um, in under circumstances where I think some of us were lulled into a sense that we had come further than we are, right? So I do think it's a moment, just like COVID is a reset, stay home, reflect, you know, um, these protests and the George Floyd incident, they're both are requiring us to open our eyes and to look at the social contract we have in our society right? What is it? What's the contract in our society? How do we take care of each other? You know, it's from do you wear masks to do the police are, is their real job to protect people or to surveil and to militarize communities? Um, does everyone get health care? <laughs> Even when they're frontline workers, right? Do some people have to be more exposed to danger than others? And what about all the communities that, that are left behind that are now so palpable, right? The same communities that George Floyd and others come out of that have issues with police brutality, also breathe dirtier air, have less uh, park space, have less fresh food, they're food deserts, they're hit with. So they aren't about brutality, they're about and structural racism and, this, and the way that it's baked into our society. And so it's it's causing us to reflect on the social contract. And the kids are part of it, right? The kids are part of it. 
and a lot of those communities are also suffering uh, COVID way, way. Exactly. Right. That's the point. Because of also, the underlying right? structural exactly. issues. Like, you know, it's right. like, what a, what a living example right in front of us, you know. Right. Exactly. Uh, right. So, Why are they vulnerable? Because they live in multi-generational households um, and because of the high cost of housing, uh, because they're frontline workers and they're not paid enough to take or it can't take off time because they live so far away from their jobs because things are so expensive so they have to get on the subway and be exposed and bring that home to family because they don't have health care all of the structural issues that leave these communities disinvested and without opportunities and the worst educational systems and lack of health care etc also made them vulnerable to COVID. So do you think, you know, uh, so for example, you know, with COVID, right, we, we have a lot of the, uh, there's a lot of the fake news people out there that are going on <laughs> um, and, uh, and people who just want to, uh, there's also a lot of people who just want to forget about it, right? They just want to yeah. go back to their restaurants. They want to go back to their habits. They're, they're frustrated. We've been home long enough. It's summer. The weather's nicer you know, what, what's wrong, you know, like, come on people. And so, you know, you talk about a global reset and one of the things that's always, you know, concerns me, you know, with, with COVID was like, we saw the, what the earth was able to do during this time when we weren't driving as much and running around mm. as much, polluting as much. And, and we've seen sort of, you know, certain like glimmers of potential, you know, that happened very quickly, actually. Um, and, and yet I think people are really, a lot of people are gunning to go to sleep. They want to go back to sleep. You know, this mm -hmm. global, global reset, whatever. Okay, <laughs> let me get back to work. Let me go back to my restaurant, you know. Um, you know, I think the same can happen also with, with uh, this whole uprising, right, that's happened right. since George Floyd. So my question is, do you think uh, that this is, you know, in both cases, do you think this is a real global reset? Do you think this is a real moment of change? Do you think that we'll really see it carry forward? Or do you think that it's something that could potentially become a blip? So to speak? So it might become a blip, but if I were a betting woman, I would bet against that. Um, number one, the protests are working. Uh, the number of changes that have already been put in place that people have been asking for um, time and time again, after these incidents like George Floyd have happened, you, you see, you know, city states and now the federal government doing something about that. So I do think that now, but it's, that's not enough, but I think that the, uh, that the quickness with which that's happened suggests that time is different. I think the other thing is the protests themselves. I mean, I feel like white people are non, non people of color have, are having an awakening, right? And it's not to say that people didn't get it before, but on the, with the depth that I think people um, are now willing to go inside to look at, you know, look at the top books on the New York Times and other bestsellers, White Fragility, The New Jim Crow, you know, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. You know, that's not being driven by a minority of the population. Uh, the people in the street are not just black folks, usually in these protests they are. So I think there's an awakening that's, that is an awakening and awakenings bring on something new. On the COVID front, we can turn, well, we can go back to sleep, but the virus is not going back to sleep. I think that um, it's much like climate change. You can pretend it's not happening until the next hurricane or the next flood or the next event that reminds you, right? That there are things that are bigger than our agency, right? And that we have to somehow live with these phenomena, ecology and these natural uh, phenomena. So I don't see how we can just turn 
right, our attention elsewhere and forget about these things. And lastly, I would say is the social contract. I want to come back to that. You know, you don't want to wear masks. You want to go back to restaurants and do this. So what does that say about how much we care about not just the people that we love in our um, homes or in our families when we don't protect them by wearing a mask and protect, but other, but vulnerable people in society and the, and, and our fellow Americans uh, and humans on the earth. Uh, so I do think that this is raising this question of what is our agreement in society about how we take care of each other and the COVID and all of the ways that you're supposed to protect each other, right? Masks aren't for us protecting ourselves, but to protect others is really, I think, illustrating something quite interesting about who we are as a society. You know, as a society. Well, and you're talking about community. You know, everything mm -hmm. you said, it goes back to community. I'll tell you, I, I, uh, I love your entire answer. And I'm, and, I, <laughs> and I'm glad because I don't want to see anything go backwards. You know, my, my thought is though, much like, uh, you know, you said there was such a quick response, uh, you know, um, but I will tell you in the same way, the earth had a quick response to us going home and we saw mm -hmm. it generate very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but I do right. think there are just those, and it really, uh, some I'm sure in the private sector as well, but definitely in the governmental sector where it's like, oh, we have, we have this uprising, we have all of this attention right now, let's feed it. But as soon as it quiets down, how do we, you know, let's, okay, now we can deflect and turn over here, you know? Um, so it's, it's really, when I speak of this, you know, I'm really thinking about the, the deeper change that also needs to happen. Obviously, the deepest change is within each of us individually, right? Which is why I think we're seeing those books on the New York Times bestseller. Exactly. You know, I'm mm -hmm. reading uh, White Fragility right now. I, it's mm -hmm. a good book. Um, uh, anyway, so, so, you know, but it's also we need the government. And we, need the, we need to have change in how we govern, uh, in who's governing, um, and in, you know, that conversation that's happening behind closed doors. But that's only part of the picture, as you say. I mean, if you look at every social movement, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the gay rights movement, you know, yes, change came through the courts and through government, but that was change that sometimes either followed um, change in people, such as the gay rights movement, right? The court didn't rule until I think there was a significant um, agreement in society that these were rights that should be granted to same-sex couples. In the case of the civil rights movement, the courts were ahead. There was a backlash or the women's rights movement with abortion. Um, but ultimately, those, changing, those changes only became long-lasting and penetrated the surface when people began to embrace them. Um, so I think that you can't have one without the other. And we can have an argument about which should go first, whether the court should have waited to rule on gay marriage until there was a societal uh, consensus or whether, as in Brown versus Board of Education or Roe versus Wade, that the courts and government should get out ahead of where people are and then just let the chips fall as they may, but at least you give people formal legal rights. That doesn't mean for equality. We know that because, right. for instance, we've had civil rights laws. We've had a black president, <laughs> actually, and our rates of segregation and the inequalities in school and across the board are the same, if not worse, in some of those areas than they were in the pre-civil rights era. Yeah. So we know that that's not enough. And we know that the agency has to come from us. And so that's why I say, what is our social contract around these things? What is our agreement, our implicit agreement as a society? 
And this is a moment. And I think COVID and George Floyd has put a fine point on this moment. And, and the fact that we're a captive audience makes it so that we now have to face these questions in a real way. And I don't think that COVID's going away, which means that we'll continue to be a captive. We're not going back to normal anytime soon. And maybe there'll never be the old normal. And I do think there's going to be a new normal across the board. That's what I think. I don't think there's going to be an old normal. I think there'll be a new normal. Um, You know, you you mentioned, uh, um, that went away like a bird. Come back. (laughs) 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 There was, um, uh, what I was going to say is, you mentioned earlier, I got it, it came back, there we go, <laughs> uh, about this being, you know, uh, an awakening for young people, thinking that they were living in a different kind of world, you know. Uh, I, I think, you know, when you, when you were talking about uh, since the civil rights movement in certain areas being worse and President Obama and, and all the things you just brought up, it, it made me think, I think this is also an awakening for white people of all ages. I think Absolutely. so many white people have woken up to realize like, oh wait, this really is still a problem. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I think even though, you know, mm-hmm. on some level, oh, racism still exists. I think, you know, that has been a, a white privilege has been to be able to think that this is is not as much of a problem as it is and not as uh, much of a pandemic as a serious thing as it is. And I think that's been a, a real powerful change for so many people. Um, that's right. And not just that is, is this, but I think how baked in it is. So the analogy I like to yes. make is that, you know, you bake a cake, someone tastes it, and there are all these ingredients in it. But just because you can't smell the ingredient or know it's there doesn't mean it's not there. It's exactly the thing that makes the cake what it is. So to say that, oh, I don't detect that, I don't taste that, I don't smell that, doesn't mean that it's not there. And I think the one thing this moment has done is not just to say it's something that's out there that we've seen, but we haven't focused on, but I think you really didn't understand how baked in and critical to the way that our society runs, racism is. It's so baked in, we can't even see and taste it anymore. And we need something like this to say, oh, it's there. Like, not only is there, it's a key ingredient. And we really do need to acknowledge that and to figure out how to bake a different cake, right? How to make a different society where it's not so prevalent, uh, where it's not so necessary to the structures and the institutions and the way our cities look, the way you know our educational system is organized, the way our banking and finance system is organized. Like when I teach this stuff, I show people just to because I'm a visual learner. But if you look at the maps where the government and banks redlined black communities back in the 40s and 50s, where they didn't get home loans because they were ruled to be, you know, not good uh, candidates for those loans. And you lay those on the maps of where the communities who were hit the hardest in the foreclosure crisis in 2008, and now the communities that are hit hardest by COVID, those maps are almost a perfect correlation. So when I say baked in, I mean that there is a continuity that we, as uh, as someone who's done this work my whole life and a lot of Black folks, we know this because you know what? We live with this legacy in these stories. Our parents told us. <laughs> we, we've had to learn it, even if it wasn't being taught in school. And so now I think the activists in the street, this new generation of Black Lives Matter, and my son and all those are saying, this is not just about George Floyd. This is not about the looting. This is about the baked in stuff. This is a crisis because this is so baked in 
and it explains so much of our current institutions and society that it's not just about laws, new laws or new policies. We really do need something different. And that's why they're still in the street as of today. That's why all around the world, but here strikes me that there's still protest every day. Well, and I, you know, from, uh, from my perspective, you know, I'm always thinking from a, a spiritual consciousness perspective, mm -hmm. you know, how do we become more holistic as a society? How do we become more, um, uh, interconnected and in, in relationship with our interconnectedness. You know, one of the things when COVID first started, I was like, ah, maybe more people's, you know, this is a great example of our interconnectedness that's hard to deny. And, and you know, the same way that we're interconnected yeah. through, this, through this virus, we're interconnected energetically, all of us. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that's really uh, just been so uh, blinding in my, my face is that uh, we can never become more holistic and more connected and more aligned if we don't deal with racism and and uh, and just how pervasive you know and and uh, and just how blind myself. I mean, I'm, my own I've had my own surprise moments of like, oh wow, like I wasn't even seeing that you know mm -hmm. that way. So um, I want to just shift here to uh, uh, urban commons. You know, <laughs> okay. projects, if I may, mm -hmm. and we can tie this all together, but I just want to yeah, sure. bring this in. Um, I do, so is that a part of it? Can I ask, um, before we go into what the project is, is that a part of what brought you to, to Georgetown, this project, or were you already doing it before Georgetown? Where does Urban Commons fit in your, you know, uh, lineup? So I've been talking about the urban commons since maybe 2006. And I tell you, it grows out of my longstanding work when I first got into academia. Um, and really when I became a lawyer, uh, looking at issues of environmental justice uh, and now climate justice. So what does that mean? Um, and it's connected into this whole conversation. It's clear, it's been clear to researchers. And um, in fact, as far back as President Clinton, who signed an executive order on environmental justice, that some communities, it's the same communities that suffer from COVID and everything I'm talking about, um, don't have the privilege of living in good environments because we, if we have to process waste or generate energy, or if there are bad things left behind when uh, companies move and leave a bunch of stuff in the ground, bad stuff, those happen to be in communities of color and in particular low-income communities of color. So there's so for, for, for many years, I worked on those issues of why it is certain communities ended up with bad stuff and also didn't have parks and a lot of the other um, amenities that we treasure when we choose a neighborhood. Um, and just add in that, uh, that we, that people exposed to more air have rates and higher infection rates and those are communities of color so again all this stuff is connected so out of that so at some point after spending many years on environmental issues and uh in neighborhoods it struck me that and i started traveling internationally and began to look at um the way that communities lived in places like bogota latin america and africa and it just so the commons, the idea of the commons is an environmental notion. It comes out of this famous essay called The Tragedy of the Commons. And the tragedy of the commons is, is that we all share the air, we all share water, we all share common goods. And if we don't all take care of it, then, and we're incentivized not to because we're all selfish actors, we will destroy the commons and that's the tragedy, right? Um, and so through that lens, I, I actually, 
uh, wasn't really thinking that, oh, land use in communities are tragic circumstances, but more that they're common goods. And there's another very famous uh, person, Eleanor Ostrom, who's the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in economics, who actually called into question the tragedy of the commons and said, actually, my research shows all over the world that communities uh, who live near forests and rivers and others can actually manage common goods to feed themselves and do so in a sustainable way. We're not all prone to the tragedy of selfishness. And I took that work and I started to say, you know, why don't we think about urban communities, neighborhoods as, and the resources that we have in cities as common goods that should be shared, particularly with communities that depend on whether it's land or whether it's housing or you know, gardens, farms, and food insecure communities, we can create common goods that are shareable, affordable, instead of just relying on privatized goods, which is mostly what we rely on, which turn out to be unaffordable to many populations, or public goods in an era when the state really has retreated from providing public goods uh, to, in particular, vulnerable populations. So the commons, to me, the urban commons, is a way into a broader conversation about how certain people live, um, even amongst a lot of wealth and a lot of resources in our society. It's really a way to open up those resources and to share them more broadly. So that's the general. Amazing. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> and love... then the city as a commons. I mean, I've so I've been theorizing that the city itself, and why the city? Because we know from the United Nations and all of the, uh, the research that we're an urbanized world and will continue to urbanize. And in fact, economic opportunity is, is concentrated in cities. So, and that's why they've been enclosed. That is to say, who lives in Manhattan? And again, during COVID, 40 to 50% of people in Manhattan left the city, but the people who could not stayed and those were the one that suffered. So, and they live further and further out from the center of cities where a lot of economic opportunity. So the city as a commons means that we should be sharing the resources of this thing that holds so much opportunity and wealth for so many. Yeah, I love that you took the inspiration though from that and uh, from both of those people and both those points of view mm -hmm. and sort of brought it into our modern world. And, and speaking of sort of the makeup of our modern world, uh, you sent me uh, the intro uh, to a book that you're working on. Mm -hmm. uh, there were a couple of facts in there. I just wanna read off in here that I just, sure. just to give a little perspective here because uh, you have in there that um, in the U.S., 3.6% of urban areas uh, in the lower 40, oh, that 3.6% um, of the, the areas in the country are urban and, and uh, in the lower 48, and uh, but four out of five people live in those areas. Did I get that right? Yes. Um, the, uh, uh, let's see, the top 10 most productive cities contribute 40% of the GDP as of 2016. 40% of the GDP was produced by the top 10 most productive cities. 50% uh, was produced by the top 20 cities. Uh, and I mean, this one, uh, New York City alone contributes 10% of the United States total GDP. Correct. Whoa. And, uh, and New York in 2017 produced 4% more economic output than the entire country of Canada. LA, which is our uh, second highest, uh, produced slightly less economic output than Mexico, and Chicago's economic output is greater than Switzerland. So these are just some 
facts I thought I'd bring to the table as we continue this conversation. And that's mirrored internationally. Tokyo, many big cities around the world are up to 60 to 80% of their entire nation's GDP production. Yeah, I read that in there that you were saying that this is really, mm-hmm. it's, it's, we find it globally as you look at the numbers across the board. Um, so people are moving into cities and, and the, the decisions and the finances, there's so much that's happening in the cities, even though it's the smallest part of land. So right. in a sense, at a time when in some ways we have uh, the least relationship to community, you know, as a, as a whole, uh, we are the most sort of stuck in these communities in some ways. So do you think, you know, the work that you're working on can actually help you know, thinking even the language of this and thinking of urban commons mm-hmm. and thinking about this, do you think that this can help bring community back into our consciousness in a, in a very, in a more tangible way? So, yes, and I'm concerned about, so there's the big community, the national community or the city level community, which I'm of course concerned about, but I'm more concerned about communities, right? Mm-hmm. And that for me, doing work on environmental justice, working in places like Camden, New Jersey, Chester, Harlem. I've done a lot of work, you know, in the Bronx and other communities and growing up in Detroit and Miami in the poorest parts of those communities and, and having my parents come out of those communities. For me, my interest is in making sure that those communities can thrive and survive. Um, and they have, we have to do that first in order for them to think of themselves as part of the larger community. So it's like Black Lives Matter. People say all lives matter, but all lives don't matter until Black Lives Matter. You see how that works? (laughs) So we can't have a human community or a national community or even a New York City community unless we bring all communities to a baseline level of the ability to live in a, a affordable quality housing, to not have food insecurity, right? To be able to access the opportunity that's concentrated in the center where they live further and further out. And so for me, the commons is how do you free up resources in the city, um, including the resource of land? Every city, including New York, has acres, thousands of acres of available vacant land that I'm working, I've been working in cities, both here and abroad, to let communities control some of that land, to let them build affordable housing with the city's help, and to put it in land trusts, a a nonprofit legal instrument in which um, it, that keeps houses affordable and and spaces affordable, whether they're you know commercial spaces or green spaces, but also lets the community have a role in controlling how those spaces are used. So it goes back to Eleanor Ostrom, the Nobel Prize winning um, economist work, where she found communities can actually do this if you give them if you share the resources that they have. You know, in Detroit, the place where I was born, they say Detroit's coming back, but actually huge parts of Detroit, huge communities are living in neighborhoods next to, you know, a lot of blight. And the city has locked up those resources and won't share them in important ways. So that's what I'm interested in is, so when I say the city has a commons, that the, it's a common good that the that local authorities should not be able to enclose and hold up and privatize in a way that we're doing. So I really, uh, I'm going to bring up in a minute, because uh, I think it'll be great to talk about some specifics, mm-hmm. a couple of going projects. So yes. I'll bring that up in a minute. But before we turn to that, uh, can you tell me, you know, so how does this get formed in a way, uh, I, have, I have sort of several questions here. 
yeah. uh, connected. You know, so how does it get formed so that uh, it's not just relying on the, the government? And I heard you talk about creating this nonprofit and so this and and, uh, and how is the governance created so that it, it's sustainable mm -hmm. and and even financially, right? So self-generating mm -hmm. back into the community. So you know, can you talk a little bit about the structure of that? You yeah, know, sure. How structured or where you know, or yeah, where you guys are in in creating that kind of a structure or thinking about that. So our theory and us, meaning my co-author who lives actually in Europe and um, the way that I met him is that we worked on an important policy for some European cities, uh, starting in Bologna, Italy, where they recognize the urban commons, the creation of the urban commons and communities rights to access resources and then the state to transfer resources to help them. Um, you know, use vacant land or use other um, parts of the city to create housing and to use an old school, for instance, and to recognize when they do that and to let them use it long-term and even to put it in a form such as a land trust, a uh, something that the city doesn't uh, control by itself, uh, but might be one of the people that have a say in what happens, but it's really driven by the users. So one level of this is policy. Can we get local governments to recognize that communities can use this. So in New York City, let me be quite specific. Um, many years ago when uh, Giuliani was bringing New York City out of the, seven, the 1970s and 80s, the period where um, you know, many neighborhoods were still transitional and even dangerous, um, he threatened to um, destroy over three or 400 community gardens that had been built by communities on vacant lots that were once lots that people dumped garbage in that were once places where drug dealing happened. And these communities had created these lots. They had become not just farms and gardens to feed people, but places where children played, where they held workshops, et cetera, important resources in communities. And the city's position was it was vacant land as if nothing had ever been de uh, dealt with it and they had control over it. In other words, the city under Giuliani was really acting as if this resource was like private property. A private property owner can do whatever they want with their property. And our argument is that for some resources, um, the public authority should be sharing them and not acting like a private actor. So I do think there is a role, you know, why is the government involved? Because if you live in a city versus a natural environment, like Ostrom was talking about, unfortunately, the local government um, holds all of these things as a matter of law, they regulate them. You really can't do anything without participation. But our idea is that they're one of many actors that need to come together, the community, to create these kind of new kinds of common goods, neither private goods nor public goods, in which the city has the monopoly authority to say who gets them or what happens, but that there is a version of common good that are both that are formed with public-private community partnerships or public community partnerships or what we call the P5, usually with you know private actors, the city, the community, um, knowledge actors, so universities and social innovators, as well as NGOs and other civic actors that often what we've seen, and we've done a study of over 150 cities in, around the world and 450 projects and policies within those cities to map the kinds of ways in which, you know, cities and communities are building these kinds of forms of common goods. And so what we're saying is what we're observing is that it takes at least three to five of those actors because it needs to be funded. It needs to be sustainable over the long term. Um, and you can create a community garden, but if you don't have 
the resources or you can create affordable housing, but actually that takes a lot of money, particularly in a place like uh, New York City. So the, uh, and then there's a, I imagine a, a um, board of trustees or directors that, that are in here, you know, I imagine the power will be split in a way so that it's not dominated by the government or whatever. So it actually, there, there's either equal or stronger voices to the community to right. itself. So one example is a, what's called a land trust. And it's a, actually the original land trust uh, comes from a African-American community in the 1940s, a, a way to hold land and build collective wealth. But uh, a land trust is simply, uh, it, it simply separates out land ownership from land use. So usually if you're a private property owner and you own a house, you own everything and you own all of the legal entitlements, the right to exclude, the right to sell, the right to transfer, everything's bundled into the owner. What a land trust does is say, we're gonna have a separate 501c3 that holds the property and title, but we're gonna, the, the use, how it's used, we're gonna give, to people in the community, right? So if you build housing on top of that land trust, they get a long-term lease and they can sell it for limited equity at the end of that lease, or if it's a park, um, et cetera. And what the land trust does, it has a governance board because it's not private property, it doesn't have one owner. And on the governance board sits three types of people. One is people who are using the land, the community members who are in the housing or the small business owner who's running the business uh, on, the land that the land trust holds, which could be one plot of land or a whole community. So one third are users. One third are the people that live in the community, right? Who have an interest in the land, but don't, but aren't using it individually. And the other third are other actors that help to create the, the common good. Local officials could be private funders, et cetera. And so that is the kind of, again, going back to Eleanor Ostrom, who uh, found that the way that communities um, governed common resources was that they made up rules, they were accountable, they had governance structures, right? And that they that they were willing to enforce them. And they sometimes did it with state authorities when the resource was big. If it were just a small base, then they could do it by the but with some to their ability to do it because again, we don't have the typical commons that Hardin wrote about in the tragedy commons, which is an and completely unowned, completely unregulated commons, even the natural environment, the state holds it in public trust. So they have to be able to recognize this. And so we've worked on policies where the city recognizes communities' right to use these resources. And New York City, for instance, recently passed a community land trust policy recognizing and even funding certain communities. If they come forward with a plan, their right to use New York City land, they can available land and buildings and put it in land trust. Yeah, I would think it this, this could actually be so good for the city as well, right? Mm -hmm. Good for the mm -hmm. community itself, good for the city. I mean, it really is uh, a win-win. And in many ways, the structure of it reminds me of a modern version of, of an indigenous culture in many mm -hmm. ways. Um, and uh, surviving through cooperation, collaboration. Exactly. So. Uh, amazing. Um, I do want to bring up and uh, just to mention it was in there's a link of this in the uh, promo email that went out to everybody but in case you didn't get it there. Uh, Sheila's website is uh, SheilaRFoster.com and we'll post that in the chat box and, uh, and on Facebook. Um, and there if you go to that you'll find uh, there's a, a tab for lab is it labgov? Labgov yes correct. Labgov and if you click on that there's two specific projects. 
um, uh, that are in there and you can look at them, click on that and follow uh, some of what's happening there. And I wanted to talk to you about one of them. Uh, let's mm -hmm. uh, talk about Harlem for mm -hmm. a minute. Um, Cause this is interesting because this is a uh, common use that's not around property, but around the internet. Um, so can you talk a little about that? And by the way, all the players that are involved, it was yeah. really mm -hmm. interesting. I was looking into it. So uh, I thought maybe we could just so, bring that yes. up as an on the ground project that's happening right now. This is a great example of something that's not about land, right? And how expansive this idea could be. Um, so I've got two projects in the U.S. and the rest are outside of the U.S. that are actively going. One in Baton Rouge is quite typical around land, but the other in Harlem. And the project in Harlem is to create a common pool resource as um, in the form of a community-based high-speed internet um, network um, using edge cloud technology. What does that mean? Uh, this is cutting-edge technology. So when we put things in the cloud, we don't really know where the cloud is, do we? It's some server somewhere <laughs> that's controlled by someone. Edge cloud technology puts the cloud in each building, right? And it's controlled by only the people in that building. And what that means is that if your community, so we'll put it in uh, NYCHA housing, um, if your community needs certain applications, but only those, then you can have those in the cloud and everyone can access them for nothing, hardly anything, because it's a common pool resource. It's in the cloud. It also involves putting a zero client. One in three households in Northern Manhattan and in the Bronx don't have access to high-speed internet, even though New York is a smart city, even though we have linked NYC on every corner. So this is the kind of problem we're trying to solve. So we're trying to create, so again, you can buy it privately, but a lot of these communities cannot afford it. Or the public, the city can create access for everyone, which they've in part done through Link NYC and public libraries. But if you're a kid trying to do homework and you hear these examples, you don't have a laptop, first of all, if you have your phone and you're standing in front of Starbucks in the public library, trying to catch a signal to do your homework. Right. This is the problem we're trying to solve. Or if uh, most jobs you apply online and you're looking for a job and you don't have access in your apartment, then you go to the public. Life. So we're trying to put give people access, create a common good that they can also govern in the way that I just talked about to create a governance board for each um, uh, part of the network that is locally located in their building that serves their particular needs, the kind of applications one needs. So it's very complicated and it's involved um, uh, both um, a community-based organization, anchor organization called Silicon Harlem, which is an organization that uh, trains people in Harlem on uh, technology, free classes for kids. They're a big, a huge actor in that community around high tech and digital goods. Microsoft has, given us the servers to put in the buildings. Uh, the New York City has to give us access to some of the infrastructure and also to connect into the high-speed 5G platform that New York is already becoming. So you have to connect into that at some point. And uh, we have university researchers, engineers, and, um, and other and private local businesses in the area that are all, have all come together and so that's what we mean by the co-city, the collaborative city, that the way to create these goods is so, to create a collaborative economy. And so will will people be able to have internet in their apartments if they have one yes. installed in their building, they'll be able to then access yes. it? More than that, we put what's called a zero client. We put something in their hands, which accesses that, that's, that's free or low cost. So again, folks that don't have computers, 
that all of the next question instead yeah. of having applications that you buy on your computer on the zero client you connect to the applications all they're all in the cloud so you don't have to buy them for your so and that's the common pool resource is that what's common is everything is pooled in the cloud that is in your building or um, in the part of Harlem that you can connect into. Well, and that was going to be my, my question was, you know, how does somebody who can't afford the hardware now, the computer, because right. then you have the next thing of like, so that's part of the project and, yes. and uh, doing it. Yes. So uh, are you saying you're providing that hardware or you're yes. saying that yes. something else that yes. you're working on or where is that in the project? So right? the funding, right. So we got funded by the National Science Foundation, Connected Communities. We got um, a lot of money to run this as a three year proof of concept to prove the concept. Right. And so we've done it. We did participatory technology trials in Harlem for people to try it out. We got the servers. And so the, now the next step is funding from a combination of public and private. Um, and then the community will help set user fees so people can afford something. They can't afford $90 a month for Internet access, but they can afford something. Uh, so it'll be funded partly by user fees, maybe $10 a month. Uh, there was a program under the Obama administration that subsidized low income access to the internet for I think $20 a month, but the Trump administration did away with that. So that no longer exists, but we found a way to scale down the cost um, by small user fees if it's heavily subsidized, again, by pooling resources and money from the public and private sectors. So that's scaling that up is, is the next. Uh, step in the project and maybe 2021 or later we can have that subsidy come back <laughs> with the, exactly and that'll help uh, i mean that won't do away with the infrastructure question which is about the city right. of the commons that you have to create the kind of no but <laughs> yes but, but it, it, it does help yes yes um uh so what year are you in in this three-year project third year in fact we're uh oh. because yes exactly and um we're finishing the third year this year and it's going to then um, uh, we're applying for new funding and there's already private and other funding that we hope to come on board. So, you know, one of the reasons why you sent me the, uh, the introduction to your book in the, uh, the first chapter um, is because when I went to read the articles that were out there, you know, it, it took a little work to translate the <laughs> <laughs> nature of the writings you know uh and, and i was able to right i was able to download a lot but it was definitely a lot of work and you were like here let me give you something a little more accessible so i want to know uh when is uh so uh when is your book coming out you know how long are we talking about and uh and is there a way to sort of follow you if, if people want to be able to track that and learn more about this when it comes out and are there other places or other resources for getting information online now uh with respect to to this subject matter yeah so there's if you google urban commons you'll find a lot of literature so most of it academic uh so the one thing that we're trying to do with the book project uh which we're finishing this summer and hopefully it'll come to press uh or be available for sale later in the year um is to broaden to to make it a more accessible idea Right. Most people say the commons, I think communism or socialism. <laughs> and so partly it's kind of explaining what it is in the form of actual work that's going on. And so a lot of what the book does is to bring forth examples from really all, all around the world, including in the US of this, of, of thinking about this uh, subject differently. And what's the subject? The subject is, you know, how do we support communities in places where most of us live? but that are so far behind in the resources that they have. 
even though we're full of resources? Um, how do we do that in a way that sidesteps privatization, which um, is now the vast wealth inequality uh, means that that's a heavy lift, right, to get the private sector to fully do this, but also uh, that sidesteps uh, the question of how we distribute public funding in a time when cities feel themselves underfunded. The reason they run after Amazons and there's a competition for the Googles and Amps, you know, Amazons is I always say, how do cities pay for themselves? I mean, they pay for themselves through tax and through taxes basically and money from the state. And so they're constantly chasing the very same private actors who control so much of what we get. So this is an opportunity to say there's a third way, right? Um, so that's to explain it in a way that's accessible. And so that's what our book, because we think that the literature out there is way too academic for people to understand this idea. Yeah, I think that, uh, I think, I do think it needs more accessible literature to get, to get more momentum mm -hmm. behind. Um, uh, just because even if people can understand it, the work you have to do to understand it. it, it exactly. Right? But, you, know. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, has this political climate, uh, you know, because you, you've started this obviously before our current administration, you know, how has that impacted this or not? Um, has it has it made it more difficult or not? Or, you know, the uh, yes and no. Um, so I think that naturally we think about the federal government as the government that matters, but actually, Right. The governments that matter often the most in terms of our everyday life are local governments and state governments. So a lot of my work has been at that level uh, because, yes, the federal government's important for lots of different things, but it turns out that if you can move the needle um, at the local level um, and have local leaders that are responsive to this. So we're focused on local leaders and state well, level leaders. And yeah. those leaders turn out to be um, open to this. Right. The, I work with That's global mayors. Yeah, I work with global mayors and um, and some other work I'm doing and mayors around the world. And one of the uh, differences between mayors and presidents, even mayors and government and uh, governors, think about it. If de Blasio or Bloomberg didn't um, pick up the garbage or clear the streets of snow, they would lose their job. Right. So there's a level at which being ideological solely being it doesn't work you actually have to serve people serve the people that elected you and that makes mayors spectacularly pr pragmatic <laughs> um, and, and so they've been more open and also a, a little bit more willing to be innovative and and we you know we've seen that for instance in uh, bloomberg i have a lot of feelings about his leadership but he did a lot of things right um in part because he was willing to be open and innovative yeah, I'm with you. I have a lot of feelings, <laughs> uh, but he did do a lot of things right. Yeah, you know, yeah, and, uh, yeah. um, uh, it'd be nice to get that kind of accountability going up into our governors and and up into the presidential level. Um, you know, I guess I guess I wonder. You know, in this country, you know, you know, do you get um, people worrying about uh, socialism around this kind of an idea, and that you know, feeling like this is more socialistic, or or are they able to sort of delineate the difference between this and socialism easily? Like, where are the, where are some of the conversations that are happening around that? Uh, so I think for in the communities where this lands, a lot of people wonder: Does this will this prevent me from building wealth? You know, our society is built on individual wealth. Property rights are very key to that. So if I get a house or apartment in a community land trust and I can sell it or you know transfer it after a certain point, but only get some of the equity, because the idea is to 
keep it affordable. So a lot of it goes back to the trust. How do I build wealth? And so that's a, particularly for people who haven't had it, who haven't had the intergenerational wealth. So the way that I explain it turns out that these are entryways into the larger market, like the folks at uh, these experiments and these forms of institutional common resources are built around can't enter into the market anyway. They can't buy a house. They don't have the down payment. They can't afford it. But they can have a, a good that serves their need and even build equity on it. It's although it's limited equity and studies have found that that is an entryway into then they can exit that and they can buy a house on the private market or on the uh, in the market economy, the way it works in the regular or mainstream housing market. So I see it as a way to lift, um, you know, communities that are starting really from not just point zero, but starting behind point zero. It's not an equal opportunity society. Right. So to say that this is a socialist project assumes that we all have this equal opportunity and we know that that's not true. Right. And it, it's actually opening a door. You're talking there on a residential or a personal level. There's also the whole what you were talking about earlier, which was the people having businesses in spaces and being able exactly to open exactly. Um, also talking about the Internet and the access and all the other ways, you know, um, in park space, green space at a time we're telling people go outside, you know, but these communities don't have green space or food deserts, you know. Um, well, yeah, thank God for NYRP and Bette Midler, right? For who exactly, yes. For so long. Uh, <laughs> she's, uh, she paved a way in a, in a big way, you know, around that and the importance of green space in Manhattan. Um, and she also saved the community gardens, by the way, from Giuliani. Yes. She gave the money. Yes, to, I know. Right? That's why yeah, when, you, when yeah. you said it, it was exactly, yeah. Bette Midler who dove yeah. in on that and put her money where her mouth was. And, Made that yeah. happen. Um, Let uh, me turn on my light. It's gotten dark. Sorry. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Asa. I'm I did one of these I did one of interviews <laughs> early on where I, I didn't have a light in the room, and uh, mm -hmm. and I went. Oh, maybe that doesn't. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> I have your. So you can see me again. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, now I can see. It's nice out. That's right. When the sun comes in, it's hard to turn it that way. But now. Okay. Um, uh, so how is, you know, so on, on what's been going on, uh, you know, with COVID and all that, like, has this in any way changed sort of the nature of what's happening around urban commons and around projects? Um, mm -hmm. Has it had a, a big impact, you know, and in what ways, you know? So actually it has. I mean, there's more interest in this model because, so for instance, the other project that I'm doing, one of the other projects we just started is in Baton Rouge in a racially stratified community with a lot of uh, households that don't have cars. They have, you know, uh, Baton Rouge is a tale of two cities. The local development agency in the city approached us to want to bring the model there. And it's funny because after COVID, um, we've, been, we've been applying for funding from various foundations and we're in the final stages of some. And one of the questions that they've asked is like how, so COVID has now highlighted the need for um, uh, new models of affordable housing, right? New thinking about, so for instance, in that community, they have 90 lots of vacant land. How we might use that resource to build entrepreneurial spaces, restaurant incubators in the community where there's a lot of food trucks and people use food as a way to make money, eco parks, green spaces, um, and to 
to bring alive this four mile stretch of the community in Baton Rouge that used to be a flourishing African-American commercial corridor, but that is very much a disinvested community and part of the tale of two cities of Baton Rouge. So, so we brought the model down there and it's become even more important post COVID because the very things that made people vulnerable. So we've, you know, we talked about the comorbidities. Why are African-Americans dying at higher rates of getting this? Oh, well, they're overweight or they have diabetes or asthma, but guess what? They're overweight because they don't have access to fresh food, affordable fresh food. They don't have access to parks. They don't have bicycles to ride on the bike lanes. Um, they've got asthma because their communities are polluted. <laughs> and now we have a Harvard public health study that connects that with COVID, right? Um, except, so all of these underlying conditions are linked to the structural inequalities. They need resources, common resources, like we're gonna build down there in the context of this model, including an eco park, including a community land trust with housing, including co-working spaces and incubators and all of the things that this community needs and to do so by bringing together, again, the five actors, right? The city and the local development arm, uh, foundation money, which we've already gotten some bank money, which we'll probably get um, the local universities who are co-designing with the community, the kind of park that they need, uh, the Build Baton Rouge, which is the local economic development authority, which has control over all of the lots in the land bank. Um, and so, and we're bringing the model there and we're working with the community and other uh, stakeholders to create these kinds of goods in, in a post-COVID world that needs them even more. Because COVID has really ripped the lid off of the starkness of the inequality. I think that's what it means to be post-COVID. You have uh, yeah, yeah. Two, two going, only two in the United States. So I'm wondering if then you've been mm -hmm. Uh, has it opened up more conversations then around the country? It has, yes, yes, it has. Um, so a lot of the work started in Europe because, um, for a very practical reason, uh, because European cities in the last crisis after 2008 really were open to innovation because they were suffering tremendously uh, in economically in a way that our cities weren't. And so we worked with Barcelona, Amsterdam, Barcelona, uh, um, uh, Bologna, and other uh, cities in Europe, as well as in uh, Latin America. We have uh, a project in uh, in uh, Costa Rica, um, and and we get pulled into these conversations all the time. And so we're willing to provide the model. And I wanted to bring it here to you to the U.S. and to work in particular in disinvested you know communities like Detroit. I'm sure. In Baton Rouge and Harlem. And so, you know, it's not always an easy conversation with those communities, but, uh, but, but, uh, but these two projects that I've just started um, within the last uh, two to three years and Baton Rouge just last year, we're building now a portfolio and a proof of concept um, so that people can see how it works. And that's why it's important to, to uh, write the book too. How, how far along is Baton Rouge? Baton Rouge is one year in. One year, and so it's also yeah. a three-year? No, Baton Rouge, we expect the model to take root in three years, uh, but um, we're uh, far into the planning stage. Again, it's easier in Baton Rouge because the local development authority in the city that called us in has control <laughs> over the property and has funding and is a partner with us in getting funding. So I think things uh, will move there as quick. Well, now that COVID has happened and our team can't travel there, um, I'm working with NYU, actually, the Merit Institute, uh, which is an institute that does work with cities. Um, and so the team from there can't travel there right now, and everything is being done by Zoom, which is a difficult way to do 
you know, community-based <laughs> planning and to bring everyone together, but it's happening. And so our timeline slowed a little, but just in the year, there's been a master plan. There's been some um, agreement on what kinds of things the community wants. Uh, there's now been some design charrettes, is what we call them, where the community gets together with um, others to figure out what they want and how much it costs. And, and we bring the resources of the model. So Baton Rouge is really developing beautifully, actually. And one of the poorest communities in the South in, in a Southern city where you've got Exxon and other big actors. And also Baton Rouge, I should add, in terms of environmental justice, is at the um, is uh, um, part of what's called Cancer Alley in Louisiana. Yes. That runs from, <laughs> and so you know it, it, it's also in terms of um, the need to, and it's also a flooding risk. I mean, they get over flooded, so we're also building in uh, climate issues and sustainability issues uh, because African American poor communities don't just need housing and and material goods, but they need to breathe better and they need to be protected from flooding. And so that, so for instance, the Echo Park that we're co-designing with the community and co-building and co-constructing will have that element to it, will mitigate against the flooding risk to homes that hopefully new homes that would be built there. I also imagine that this may shine a spotlight on, on the disregard uh, for the mm -hmm. environment that's allowed to happen there and, and what some of these companies have done, you know, and have been allowed to do um, and the impact that it's had on these communities that as, as you sort of, uh, create this urban commons that it's also mm -hmm. sort of also in a way makes certain things have to be addressed you know it's going to sort of exactly find a light over here to say oh this is happening we can't we can't do this and not address this it's a little bit like uh dealing with systemic racism right now you know exactly where it's, it's interesting this is uh it's very cool and uh, back to community i do i do want to say when you bring people together to collaborate like this you do create community and you create forms of not just social capital within communities where people get closer, but that you help them bridge out of what are really spatially segregated communities that can also lead to other opportunities. And so that is a part of this is that when you co-create, as we say, it's a co-city model, co-design, co-create, co-construct common goods together with these other stakeholders, and the same in Harlem, you really open up, I think, people's horizons and opportunities. Uh, and you create what a sociologist called bridging social capital for people to bridge away from segregated communities that lack opportunities to the larger community, coming back to that community conversation. Um, I think that, you know, outside of our heart and love, uh, I think one of the greatest resources that we ever have, or the greatest might be second to love is, is creativity. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, creativity and love to go hand in hand. Um, and, and one of the things that we've seen throughout history is, is the amount of creativity that gets inspired through suffering and, and what has come out of suffering and has been expressed from it uh, has, has been incredible. And, and, you know, we've gotten to a place where in some of these communities it's gotten so oppressed and so there's mm -hmm. been such a black and white society and I didn't even mean that. <laughs> but, <laughs> Literally uh, and figuratively. Yes, that's yes, right. We've gotten, we've gotten yeah. to such extremes here yeah. that yeah. I think uh, I think that there's been such a cap on the the resource of creativity for mm -hmm. for so many of these individuals in these communities. And so I'm really kind of excited to see what what comes from that. 
you know exactly what, what is the creativity that gets accessed and what what happens in our world from this because sort of circles back long story around to that you know more holistic view that mm -hmm. i was talking about and i think this is about we need we need all of our creators we need all of our, our loves we need all of our hearts we need us all um active and alive and, and living and doing and being and expressing um in the world and there are a lot of social innovators in these communities um oh yeah you know and 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 a lot of assets in these communities. You know, we think of them as poor, you know, disinvested communities. And while that's true, or, you know, subjugated communities, actually, when you go, and that's why throughout my entire academic career, I love theory, I can do theory, but there's nothing like practicing on the ground. And, and just the reason I became a lawyer, the reason I, you know, got into all these fields is I want to make a difference and impact. And there's nothing like being with the people and delivering on things into, you know, testing, not to use them as a laboratory, but rather to making sure that what you're thinking about can work with folks. Yes. Otherwise it's just an idea, <laughs> otherwise it's just a theory. So, and I found over the, the now more than two decades and working uh, in communities is that there's incredible, incredible creativity and innovation and assets. They have their own internal assets and if you, activate those it's amazing what can happen if, behind, if you give them the resources yes and behind that creativity and behind all of that is love you know it, that's love. right you know what we have to remember is you know people drive through some of these neighborhoods and they know they forget that you know behind that door that may look frightening to you or scary or you don't know how people are living there's love in there absolutely you know, that's right there's, there's you know there are families there's love there's you know everything that happens in our households i mean i just it's the it's the narratives that we buy into in society that that make us other people to say that's the other that's, right. they're not like me they're this other and that's why yeah. we've, been, we've been able to shut our eyes or turn away from ferguson's and all the other way times this has happened or right here eric garner in new york we've been able to say, well, that happens to them, but not to us, you know, so let someone else fix that. Um, so this is perspectives on the reemergence. So I want to circle mm -hmm. back to that now and say, so, you know, uh, so we're, so it's interesting, you know, we got sent home to, mm -hmm. to uh, for our little, you know, some people call it the reset, right? And mm -hmm. uh, uh, to think about where we've been and how we might impact the world in a better way. What, what do we really value in life? All of that. And as that's happening, and as we're, we're you know, so-called coming out of that, not really, uh, but as it's <laughs> another phase, yeah. um, you know, we have George Floyd and the, the uprising and Black Lives Matters, and it's like, oh, here, here's something. By while you're thinking about this, let's let's look at this. You know, uh, as individuals, you know, uh, do you have any opinion as far as? Um, I don't know how to stay grounded through this mm -hmm. in, in mm -hmm. how to stay grounded with what matters right now, how to stay connected and, and how one might have value during this time, you know, really tap into their own right. value. And so the big question is not fair. So right. No, really but, and so I'm going to ground my answer because I don't know how to answer that for everyone, but something that's happened in my life. And I think in for people of color, African-Americans is period. Some of my colleagues and even friends or people I've worked with in other settings, a few of them have written to me just to acknowledge what's going on. You know, I've gotten some interesting emails and just like saying that, I just want you to know that I think what 
is going on is important. I'm really sad for, you know, and just to say that, and I feel like I have a lot to learn reflecting themselves because I think the worst thing, so that's one concrete way because we have people in our lives and hopefully you have African-Americans in your lives. They don't have to be friends, but they can be colleagues or acquaintances or people you've worked with. And, you know, that connection is grounding. Um, and even though I don't have anything else to say to that person other than, well, thank you, and it's a tough moment, and blah, 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 that acknowledgement and the fact that that person is saying, I know I'm a white person, I have all this, all these ways I need to reflect, and I just want to let you know that I see this moment. That's never happened before, and all the uprisings and protests, and that's why I say it's an awakening. Um, they're not asking me to do the work, so that's one thing. We always get asked to explain to me or something like they're just saying, I'm doing the work. I'm seeing you. I'm seeing this moment. Um, or I be really and you know, my son's friends, the same thing. His friends that do that just say, hey, man, I see you, bro. Or however they talk, <laughs> bro, this is messed up. Even if they say that it's an affirmation and acknowledgement that is goes a long way because coming back to the social contract in the community. If we're not all in this together, if you think it's our problem to solve, black people's problem or brown people's problem, if you think it's just ours, it's just our, it's just about our communities, then we're never going to emerge out of it, right? It really is baked into, it is our system. We own it. We all own it. We're all in it. <laughs> and we're all complicit in, you know, continuing it. So I think that kind of outreach. So for me to stay grounded is to do something that's right in front of you, low, what we call low hanging fruit. Well, I'm gonna tell you what I got from that. A couple things, one <laughs> is, uh, and, and thank you. Um, I know I lobbed a big one there. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't knock but it I, out of the park, but I got to first base hopefully. <laughs> oh no, I, I think you did, because what you talked about is the power and importance of acknowledgement, number one, mm -hmm. and, and you know, no one heals without acknowledgement. Right. Um, it's, it's, uh, I get choked up just even saying it, you know, and imagining, uh, in all different situations in life, right. Um, mm -hmm. the importance of acknowledgement and for, for us as human beings. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and number two was that I think one of the biggest things that happens, uh, to people and good people in the world are sitting yeah. at home mm -hmm. feeling helpless and like they don't know what to do or how do I make change and, and while they're struggling with it you know I love sort of this this uh, idea that like you know what just just reach out to somebody and, and send them this message and realize like that matters and it's that reminder that that the steps that we take that the world changes one person at a time it, it's each and every one of us and the power and importance of that uh and and that you know uh obviously you know that that you know, one white person can't necessarily speak for all white people, but it, but it's, but that's not right. what you're, what, what you need. It's right, just that one person speaking to you. It's human to human, heart to heart, uh, and the the power of healing from heart to heart connections. Absolutely, uh, absolutely. So simple, but so hard for people to do because you know I understand people feel nervous. What if I say the wrong way? But you know what? Take a risk. Uh, we take risks. My son takes risks every day walking out the door. You know, always you know, say you've got a racial tax that other people don't pay, you know, and that's just part of the way we have to live. So the fact that other people take different kinds of risks with us is meaningful, even if you get it wrong. Yeah, I think it's actually also on that note, you know, one of the things I've been, I was talking about with um, an interview with Tessa Hirsch a couple of weeks ago, and, and we were talking about this, which was, 
you know. Uh, Which was a fabulous interview. I saw it. Oh, you did get to hear it. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. So yes, 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 yes. Maybe yes. Heard, you may have heard me say it where it's like, you know, we have to get okay with realizing you might say the wrong thing. You might say exactly. the wrong thing to a person mm -hmm. of color and like, you know, uh, as long as it's not being said in a in a cruel, rude, disrespectful, you know, if it's really being said from a certain place, allow yourself to be corrected. You know, it's, exactly. it's also a really important time to really back to acknowledgement, to be able to go, oh, okay, let me take that in, you know, and realize mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, um, nobody's asking you to have all the answers, you know, to know all the answers any more than they have all the answers or know all the answers if they, whoever they are, you know, um, you know, it's, it's about it. Being able to open up this dialogue in a way mm -hmm. and realize that it's not a completely safe dialogue. It's not a completely mm -hmm. safe place to to step into, but it never will be if right. we don't start somewhere. So that's right. That's right. And it does show that you're in it with you know, there is a way to be present in what's happening. And that's what I see that's different about this moment. People, you know, when people say, Oh, most of life is showing up, right? I mean, in some way that's true in the moment. I mean. I've heard people like Al Sharpton say, look at all the white folks in the street. Not because we think we need white folks, but it's like, look how many people are showing up for this. Yes. Whether it's in my life or on the streets or, you know, centering voices that that they, you know, wouldn't normally center. I've seen, you know, some famous people letting academics or black artists take over their social media. That is a way of showing up that I think has means that, okay, now if I have allies with me, if I know you're in this with me, it does help actually for those of oh, us. Oh no, it's so important. Are you it's kidding me? It's so important to be present and to show up, you know? And so, and that's what's different about this moment. I do feel there's a showing up with people that may have been on the sidelines, sympathetic, you know, feeling right. us, you know, wanting to do something, but staying on the sidelines. Well, it's, it's a desegregation of the issue. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. that's is is right. what it, what you're actually seeing right? by by seeing all the white people go in there. But also, I mean, I'm going to tell you, you know, as a as a gay man, you know, I know, you know, there was a point where, you know, if you went to the rallies and and you were sort of uh, fighting for certain rights, you know, you had all, you know, you were with only gay people, you right. know. And and I remember even a time in conversations. I can remember in my lifetime, you know, when you'd have conversations with people where it's like, you know, look, you know, it's okay for you to be gay behind closed doors like I don't have I don't I'm not prejudiced against you I don't have any problem with you you know just keep it behind closed doors but but changing our laws I don't know about that you know I love you right. but you know right. uh and I know going from that to to seeing you know having so many heterosexual allies that mm -hmm. have been so important mm -hmm. um in making that's how social happen. change happens I mean that was right. my point so you know so, early yeah, in the conversation so, absolutely yeah well I just bring it up because it's I, I'm gonna say yeah that. that's right you know that's it right. is it is an important thing seeing those people out mm -hmm. there because it really says, you know, uh, we're, you know, it's it, this is our it's a human issue, you know. And mm -hmm. they, of course, it's uh, it it's an issue for people of color in a, in a very specific way. But the fact that that issue exists in the world is a human issue, and we all have mm -hmm. to do something about it. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Sheila, you've been amazing. Well, thank you. It's always amazing to talk to you. you know, we see eye to eye and we yes. feel <laughs> to be on the same wavelength with uh, someone. And I appreciate your having these um, these talks. I've been watching not all of them, but a lot of them. And they're always they always fill me with hope. And also it's they're kind of eye opening. So I hope that I've been able to serve some of that purpose. Well, and you know, one of the reasons why I'm doing it, I think that the world changes through, it's our, it's consciousness, right? Like mm -hmm. at the end of the day, mm -hmm. all of these things we do, 
uh, where we are changing the vibrational alignment of our mm -hmm. of our community of our global community uh, you know one one person at a time and so you know I think that uh, there's having a spiritual conversation just staying in the subject matter of spirituality and then there's having mm -hmm. these kind of conversations and realizing it is a spiritual conversation because it's when we expand our own awareness when we become tuned to it we become conscious of it we, we begin to affect the vibrational quality of the planet that we live on of the the communities that we live in and eventually that's how we'll change this planet people want to sit there Absolutely. and 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 we need problem solvers you know but there are mm -hmm. people that can get so focused on how do we fix that problem that they forget that you know so much of fixing the problem is changing the mind you know mm -hmm. uh, opening the heart uh and and having the conversation mm -hmm. um so it's been really important. And if these shows are good, it's because I am so blessed by by knowing the most amazing people. I, I really, I, I can't tell you, I wake up every day and I have a moment of gratitude with my, uh, in my meditation for uh, the people I've been exposed to in my life and you're one of them. So uh, it's been great. Um, well, it's been a blessing to have you in my life. So thank you. All right. Well, thank you for being here tonight. And next week, uh, I have, oh, by the way, just to remind you all, I think it, it went in the box there, but it's uh, SheilaRFoster.com. Uh, it's worth checking out the lab projects and uh, trying, you know, what's going Oh, I didn't ask. So with the books, mm -hmm. we'll, if somebody's looking at your website, we'll, you'll release it on your website. Yes, Give us, I will. Your social yes. media follow, place to follow. Yes, for the, Twitter. For I'm on Twitter. I think it's Sheila Foster. I'm on Instagram. I, I, you can find me on all platforms. You can follow me on Facebook. Great, yeah. I think my name, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'll, and I'll, of course, when the book comes out, you let me know. I'll make sure that I, I will, of course, get yeah. out to, to my peeps as well. Okay, um, that'd be great. Um, and I just wanted to tell everybody. So next week I have uh, Carolyn Casey, uh, who's an author. She's an astrologer. Uh, she called herself a visionary activist. She's, uh, you know, an, an amazing, creative, interesting woman uh, with a lot to say. So I think it's going to be another interesting conversation. Um, from a very different voice than what you're used to hearing. And I think it's going to be so much fun. So I hope you guys can make it. It'll be next Monday, 7 p.m. Um, and I will look forward to seeing you there. In the meantime, stay well. Remember to support your neighbors. And uh, it's all about love at the end of the day. So, and how do we express love in the world? We express it through how we show up, uh, through our actions, through our deeds, uh, through our words. And it is not easy. It is not easy to love. So the, the parts of love that are easy and that feel really good, that feed us, those are motivation. The parts of love that really matter are really difficult. So do the work and I hope to see you next week.